Chapter Ten of the Upas Tree by Florence L. Barclay. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne. Chapter Ten. Ronnie arrives in a fog. Ronnie reached Liverpool Street Station at eight o'clock on a foggy November morning. After the quiet night on the steamer, the landing in darkness at Harwich, and the steady run up to town alone in a first-class compartment, he felt momentarily confused by the noise and movement within the great city terminus. The brilliant lights of the station, combined with the yellow fog rolling in from the various entrances, the onward rush of many feet, as hundreds of busy men and eager young women poured out of suburban trains, hurrying to the scenes which called for their energy during the whole of the coming day, the gliding in and out of trains, the passing to and fro of porters, wheeling heavy luggage, the clang of milk-cans, the hoot of taxicabs, and, beyond it all, the distant roar of London, awaking and finding its way about heavily, like an angry old giant in the fog, all seemed to Ronnie to be but another of the queer nightmares which came to him now with exhausting frequency. As a rule he found it best to wait until they passed off, so, holding the infant of Prague in its canvas case in one hand, and the bag containing his manuscript in the other, he stood quite still upon the platform, waiting for the roar to cease the rush to pass by, the nightmare to be over. Presently, an inspector who knew Ronnie walked down the platform. He paused at once with the ready and attentive courtesy of the London railway official. "'Any luggage, Mr. West?' he asked, lifting his cap. "'No, thank you,' replied Ronnie. "'Not to-day.' He knew he had luggage somewhere, heaps of it. But what was the good of hunting up luggage in a nightmare? Dream luggage was not worth retrieving— Besides, the more passive you are, the sooner the delusion leaves off tormenting you. "'Have you come from the hook, sir?' inquired the inspector. "'Yes,' said Ronnie. "'Did you think I had come from the eye?' He knew it was a vile pun, but it seemed exactly the sort of thing one says in a nightmare. The inspector laughed and passed on, then returned, looking rather searchingly at Ronnie. Ronnie thought it well to explain further. "'As a matter of fact, my friend,' he said, I have come from Central Africa, where I have been sitting round campfires, in company with asps and cockatrices and other interesting creatures. I am writing a book about it, the best thing I have done yet. The inspector had read and enjoyed all Ronnie's books. He smiled uneasily. Asps and cockatrices sounded queer company. Won't you have a cup of coffee, sir, before going out into the fog? he suggested. Ah, good idea, said Ronnie and made his way to the refreshment-room. It was empty at this early hour, and quiet. All the people with rushing feet and vaguely busy faces had breakfasted at a still earlier hour in their own cosy homes. Their wives had made their coffee. Tomorrow Helen would pour out his coffee. It seemed an almost unbelievably happy thought. How came such rapture to be connected with coffee? He spent a minute or two in deciding at which of the many little marble tables he would sit, he never remembered being offered so large or so varied a choice at Liverpool Street Station before. You generally made a dash for the only empty table you saw, usually close to the door. That was like Hobson's choice, this or none. A stable of forty good steeds, always ready and fit for travelling, but the customer must take the horse which stood nearest to the door. Well, to-day he had the run of the stable. Forty good marble tables. Which should he choose? The young woman behind the counter watched him with interest as he wandered about, carefully examining each table 
and sitting down tentatively at several. At last he chose the most central, as being the furthest removed from Hobson's choice, sat down, took the infant out of its bag, and, screwing in its pointed foot, leaned it up against another chair at the table. Then he found that one of the young women had come from behind the counter, and was standing at his elbow, patiently awaiting his pleasure. He ordered a cup of coffee and a roll and butter for himself, a glass of milk and a sponge-cake for the infant. Just after these were served, before he had had time to drink the steaming hot coffee, the friendly inspector arrived, accompanied by another railway official. They said they had come to make sure Ronnie had found what he wanted in the refreshment room. Ronnie thanked them for their civility, and showed them the infant. They looked at it with surprise and interest, but nudged one another when they noticed the glass of milk and the sponge-cake, which Ronnie had carefully pushed across to the infant's side of the table. Then they saluted, and went out. Left alone, Ronnie drank his coffee. It instantly cleared his brain of the after-effects of the sleeping draught which Aubrey had insisted upon giving him just before the steamer sailed the night before. His surroundings ceased to appear dreamlike. A great wave of happiness swept over him. Why, he was in London again. He was almost at home. If he had let Helen meet him, she might have been sitting just opposite, at this little marble table. He looked across and saw the unconscious infant's glass of milk and sponge-cake, he drew them hurriedly towards him. He felt suddenly ashamed of them. It was possible to carry a joke too far in public. He knew Helen would say, Don't be silly, Ronnie. He particularly disliked milk, and was not fond of sponge-cakes, but he hastily drank the one and ate the other. He could think of no other way of disposing of them. He hoped the young women, who were watching him from behind the counter, would think he enjoyed them. Then he called for a whiskey and soda to take out the exceedingly beastly taste of the milk, but instantly remembered that old Dick had said, touch no alcohol, so changed the order to another cup of coffee. This second installment of coffee made him feel extraordinarily fit and vigorous. He put the infant back into its bag. The inspector returned. We have found your luggage, Mr. West, he said. If we may have your keys, we can get it out for you. Ah, do, said Ronnie. Many thanks. Put it in a taxi. I shall leave it at my club. I am afraid I was rather vague about it just now, but I had been given a sleeping draught on board, and was hardly awake when I got out of the train. I am all right now. Thanks for your help, my good fellow. The inspector looked relieved. Ronnie paid his bill, took up the cello, handed his bag to the inspector, and marched off gaily to claim his luggage. He felt like conquering the world. The fog was lifting. The roar of the city sounded more natural. He had an excellent report to make to his publisher, heaps of copy to show him, and then he was going home to Helen. In the taxi he placed the infant on the seat beside him. On the whole he felt glad he had told Helen not to meet him at the station. It was so much more convenient to have plenty of room in the taxi for his cello. It stood so safely in the seat beside him in its canvas bag. As they sped westward, he enjoyed looking out at the fog and mud and general wintry aspect of London. He did not feel cold. Aubrey had persuaded him to buy a magnificent fur coat at The Hague. He had lived in it ever since, feeling gorgeous and cosy. Aubrey's idea of suspending money suited him better than Helen's. His taxi glided rapidly along the greasy embankment. Once it skidded on the tram-lines, and Ronnie laid a steadying hand upon the cello. The grey old Thames went rolling by, mighty, resistless, perpetually useful, right through the heart of busy London. 
Ronnie thought of the well-meaning preacher who pointed out to his congregation, as an instance of the wonderful overrulings of an all-wise providence, the fact that large rivers flowed through great cities, and small streams through little villages. Ronnie laughed very much at the recollection of this story, and tried to remember whether he had ever told it to Helen. Arrived at his club, he shaved, tubbed, changed his clothes, and, leaving his cello in charge of the hall porter, sallied out with his manuscript to call upon his publisher. In his portmanteau he had found Dr. Dick's bottle of stuff to take on the journey. Aubrey had persuaded him to pack it away. He now took a dose, then slipped the bottle into the pocket of his fur coat. All went well during the rest of the morning. His publisher was neither preoccupied nor vague. He gave Ronnie a great reception and his full attention. In the best of spirits, and looking the bronzed picture of perfect health, Ronnie returned to his club, lunched, showed his cello to two or three friends, then caught the three o'clock train to Hollymead. The seven months were over. All nightmares seemed to have cleared away. He was on his way to Helen. In a half an hour he would be with her. He began to wonder, eagerly, what Helen would say to the infant. He felt quite sure that as soon as he got the bow in his hand, and the cello between his knees, the infant would have plenty to say to Helen. He had kept his yearning to play under strong control so that she might be there to enjoy with him the wonderful experience of those first moments. As the train slowed up for Hollymead, and the signal lights of the little wayside station appeared, Ronnie took the last dose of Dick's physic and threw the bottle under the seat. End of chapter 10